I'm going to um, echo what David said. Um, I think November 1st is the official day when I'm allowed to listen to Christmas music in my house. Only, uh, I, I think I've shared this in the past, my, my youngest, he was supposed to be born on Christmas Day, um, December 25th, 2005, um, but he was excited to come into the world, so he came a little bit early, he came December 18th, however, he considers himself a Christmas baby, and so he starts listening to Christmas music, you know, back in June or so, and I can walk by his uh, room, and I have many times, and I hear him listening to Bing Crosby and so forth, and he knows Christmas songs way better than I do, in fact, I was singing the... Um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and I got the names of the reindeer wrong, and he corrected me yesterday. Maybe it was Friday, but I was just like, oh, man, this kid knows his Christmas songs. I'll tell you what, though, I don't know if, if you've grown up in church, you, you, you probably at different points realized that the lyrics that you were singing actually weren't what the song actually is, right? I've, I used to sing uh, Away in a Manger, Always in a Manger, which if Jesus was always in a manger, we'd be, we'd be, <laughs> we'd be hurting or... Um, what's another one? Oh, We Three Kings of Orientar. And I'm like, what is an Orientar? And, you know, as a kid, not knowing what is Orientar. Or here's another one. Um, you know, Born is the King of Israel. Born is the King. It almost sounds like Barney's the King of Israel, right? <laughs> Some of the Christmas songs we're going to sing are, are, are rich and deep, and others maybe not quite so rich. But, you know, I just wanted to point out, and I hope we sing it again um, over the next few weeks because it ties into where we're going you know, the song Joy to the World was written by Isaac Watts almost five centuries ago. Only he didn't write it as a Christmas hymn. He actually wrote it as a second Advent hymn. And if you listen to the words, words next time, the lyrics, you realize he's talking about things like nor thorns infest the ground or his blessing flowing out to every place the curse is found. It's, it's a hymn that was written not for Christmas, but a hymn, hymn that was written about the second coming or the return of Jesus. And that's, that's where we're going this morning is, um, and the next three weeks is instead of looking backward, which we t- tend to do, you know, it's fun to look back at the manger and Bethlehem and the star and the wise men and, and King Herod and all the stories and Mary and Joseph. And um, we're actually going to kind of turn forward and look at the second advent of Jesus. Advent is just a, a word for coming or arrival. Um, and there's, 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 there's reason for that. I think it's fitting. I think it's timely for us to, 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 to think about the, the, the return of Christ. In, in part because I think, if I was to guess, I think most of us probably don't think about it that much. Maybe it's a kind of a, think of it as a back burner truth. You know it's out there, but for the most part, you're just living in your day-to-day present existence. And um, I think that's to our peril. Um, to not keep that front and center. I mean, the early church, you read the New Testament, you realize um, our brothers and sisters in the first century, they were passionate about the return of Christ and they were looking for it. And, um, and my hope is that through these messages and through the song and through our focus that God might um, refresh and renew our sense of hope um, in the return of Christ. Um, but if I might give uh, an analogy, um, just to kind of start us off, and maybe why it's important um, to use an analogy of my, my own marriage or my own life, um, which is fitting because when the Bible talks about the, um, the return of Christ, it often uses uh, wedding terminology, wedding day. I proposed to my wife in 1992 on, on January 8th. 
And then we got married eight months later on August 8th, 1992. So there was this eight-month gap between the time in which I said, will you marry me? She said, yes. I gave her a ring, and we were technically betrothed, right? Don't you love that word? It's a British word, betrothed. Um, engaged to be married. We were committed to each other. We were in a relationship. But then there was this eight-month gap between um, asking her and becoming engaged and then actually our wedding day. And some of that time that we... In that eight months, uh, we were apart. She was up in Washington, I was in California. She's a Washingtonian, I'm a California boy. And I'll tell you what, during those two or three months that we were apart, it was the only thing I thought of was wedding day. You know, you got the calendar, you're like, exiting off the day, it's going 29 days till I get to be with her all the time, right? And I was excited about it. It was the, like the date on the calendar that I just couldn't wait for. Now, something would have been wrong with me if I didn't look forward to that, if, if Deanna called me up on the phone and said, hey, only 29 more days, and I responded, 29 more days to what? Um, it would have at very least suggested to her in very loud ter terms um, that I don't care, that I'm really not hoping for it, that maybe I don't want to spend my life with her. But that wasn't the case. It was the earnest desire of my heart. So if... Like the greatest of all experiences is to see the face of Christ, who is at now absent from us physically, if that is the greatest thing ever. But we don't think about it, and we don't long for it. Then something's wrong in here. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with you. That's not a trying to place guilt. It's just a way of assessing where is my heart in terms of this Christian truth, the face of Christ, the wedding date that every Christian is supposed to long for more than anything else. And if, if it's not there, then it's important for us to, to be honest about that and say, Lord, we need some help. We need some um, renewal in here. We need a renewed hope, a renewed focus, a renewed passion, a renewed affection for the, the best day when we get to spend time with him all the time. And to do that, just kind of part of this refreshment is going to be these three, four messages, excuse me. And, and this morning in particular is, is meant to stir up. In, um, in the writings of, of, of the Apostle Peter in his second epistle, this is what he says. And this is kind of the thrust. Well, it is the thrust. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. He wrote 1 Peter and this is 2 Peter, um, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing first of all, excuse me, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? So this whole thing is aimed at the subject of the second coming of Jesus, or the second advent, his return. And in particular, what he wants to do through his writings and what he wants to do through my teaching on his writings is he wants to stir up a focused mind, to stir up hope, to stir up a sense of affection for the return of Jesus. That, that word stir up is interesting because it's often used in ancient literature for the stirring up of water, like you have a, a calm pond or you have a calm ocean and then a storm and wind come and it just agitates it and creates this intense stirring. It's like, this is what I want to do to you by wind of God's word. I want to stir up that sense of hope and the, the, um, the focus of your mind on the return of Christ. That's, 
That's his aim. And that's, if I'm going to be true to this, that's my aim. It's just for us to be stirred up this morning, to stir the pot and to stir up hope. And to do that, he uh, warns us of the danger, first movement. He gives us three, what I'm going to call divine truths to consider. And then he ends with the moral implication for how we're supposed to live. Like it's supposed to matter right here, right now. The first one has to do with the danger, which I've already alluded to and you've already read. He says that in the last days there shall come, and it's the future tense. So from Peter's vantage point, this is some future time that scoffers are going to come. after a delay of sorts from Jesus not coming back, and they're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? That is, they're going to say, listen, history's continued the same old way, and it's going to continue in the future in the same old way. That is, the promise isn't going to happen because it's been so long. He says, you got to watch out for those people who are going to scoff and who are going to create cynicism and doubt about the return of Christ. And let me just say... Um, I believe that this could have been written for today. Uh, We live in a secular age where the whole concept of God, much less the return, the apocalyptic return of Jesus, is, is like a fiction. It's a myth. It's kind of unthinkable. It's it's like a, a, a Christian myth that people believe in, but it's, it's not real. It's not tangible. Like, it's not actually going to happen. That's, that's the world in which we live in, and unfortunately, we as Christians kind of can easily buy that too, but I find we buy it along different lines. Let me um, lay out for you like a, a scenario and the response that many Christians will, well, no, let, let me just make this personal. People ask me from time to time, uh, didn't do this in the first service, ask me from time to time, do you think the end is near? And of course, I don't know for sure, right? But there are certain things in Scripture that would lead me to believe that it's coming soon, right? So you talk about these different signs or, or things that precede his return. Like one of the things Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, is it says the gospel of the kingdom will go throughout all the world and then the end shall come, which means part of the precursor to him coming is the gospel of what he's done on the cross will go across the globe, right? That's a sign of what's happening. Another one, um, that there will be these um, catastrophes, both natural and, and man-made, of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and so forth, and it seems as if they're going to escalate and they're going to happen, happen in greater frequency. And again, another, if you will, a precursor, a, a, a sign, uh, right? Another one. Jesus says that lawlessness will increase in the end. That is, there is going to be a moral implosion in the world. Another sign. It sure seems to me that we're kind of in the middle of one right now, like circle and toilet bowl. We're told that there is going to be some kind of man with lawlessness that uh, appears um, who has some degree of control over the world and its finances. And we live in a world where, technologically speaking, that's possible. So let's just say for sake of argument, that all of those preceding things are happening with greater frequency, suggesting that the return of Christ is is near. Let's just say for sake of argument that all that is true. This is what I often hear back. Yeah, but they've been saying that for years. You heard that before? I've been talking about that for years. They've been predicting and sensing the coming of Jesus for a long time, but he hasn't come, so it's eh, right? Have you ever heard that? Here's a question. Why do we say that? 
Why would you say, ah, they've been saying that for years? It's like throwing a wet blanket on excitement, anticipation, and expectancy. Instead of going, you know, it's true. Like, we're definitely closer today, and the things we see going around us, man, sure seems to me like the coming of Jesus is right around the corner. Why wouldn't we want to stir? Why wouldn't we want to encourage each other or stimulate one another to actually hope more in the coming of Jesus rather than throwing a, you know, a wet bucket of water on? Well, I've been saying that for years. Doesn't that just create a sense of cynicism and, and doubt? It just... <sighs> now, I'm not suggesting we, we, we you know, di- digress into an apocalyptic frenzy and start date setting and stuff, but... Man, early church was passionate about it. They believed it was a date on the calendar and they were looking for it. I don't think we're there. I don't think we have that kind of passion for it. And he's right here saying, watch out. It's not just the naysayers and the scoffers. It can just be the cynics and the doubters and the people who say, ah, they've been doing that for thousands of years. Is that maybe he's talking to us? That's the danger. We, we can't let that happen. I can't fall asleep, can't become numb. But to know that there's a date on the calendar in which an apocalyptic event is going to happen, and that is going to be the return of Jesus. Wedding day is coming. That should be exciting rather than, eh, they've been saying that for thousands of years. So to help stir, he gives us these divine truths to consider, realities. The first of which is he reminds us of God's past intervention. Past intervention. Now, before I, I talk about the scripture, it's really easy for us to, um, to disbelieve things that are outside the scope of our experience, right? Um, and you probably have your own things that you didn't believe when you were young, and then later you realize, wow, this is real? Like, for, I don't know, for whatever reason, I always thought of England as a myth- mythical place. I don't know if it was because of Mary Poppins or it was because of the Knights of the Round Table. I don't know. But it seemed to me like it's just out there, Stonehenge, you know? And I remember taking a plane. It was 1989, and we flew into Heathrow, and I, I was like, Israel! <laughs> England's really here. I had to pinch myself, walked into the cathedrals, and just like, whoa, this is awesome. I, it, it was outside the realm of my experience. In my mind, I thought it really isn't real until I put my feet on it. Or I remember watching Star Trek as a kid. I mean, the old one, not the new one, but one with William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and Bones and Scotty. And they had the little, like, they look like iPhones, little communicators. Beam me up, Scotty, right? As a kid, man, no wires. And like they could talk to each other for distance. The only thing I knew was a phone cord that like, stretched to the bathroom and back. You know, <laughs> I was thinking, there's no way that could exist. I mean, in my little head, I thought that kind of technology will never exist. And now, right now, if I wanted to, I could pick up my iPhone. I could FaceTime my daughter down in Southern California, and we'd have a real-time interaction. I was texting somebody some time ago in, in our congregation. They were down in Argentina, and I was up in the mountains, and we were having a conversation. I'm like... It's here, right? It's even better. It's like at least the, you know, the Star Trek ones, you didn't have a face. You just had a, a voice. But you see what I'm saying? It's like just because it's outside the realm of your experience doesn't mean it's not real. And that's what he's pointing at. He say, listen, the people who are the scoffers, they're deliberately overlooking an important fact. That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, that is the water, 
waters. The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for life or for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the, of the ungodly. What he's saying here is he's saying, listen, let's just take a little, um, little stroll down memory lane. By the word of the Lord, the heavens appeared. He simply said, and it came to be. And he created land out of the water, and he put life on that land with the division of the water on both sides and above and below. And then, as a result of mankind's like descent into moral catastrophe, God plunges that land upon which life is back into its original state of chaos and death, that is, he drowned the world, an entire civilization wiped out. An event which nearly every ancient culture, literary or verbal, has attested to as a fact. He's saying, listen, let's just go back to an apocalyptic event that happened that still is attested to outside of the Bible. When God wiped life from the earth except what was in the ark. You forget that? It happened back then, and you know what? Because of that, it's going to happen again. There will be an apocalyptic event, and even though it's outside the scope of your experience, it's happened before, it will happen again. So he's saying, here, remember what he's done in the past, because he's going to do it again in the future. Two, the fact that he's delayed this long has been 2,000 plus years. And he reminds us that God doesn't experience time like we do. He doesn't go, oh, man, it's been a whole week or it's been a whole year. It's like one day is like a thousand years to him, so it's, he's not in a hurry. But he explains the reason or divine motive behind it. It's like he recognizes that the delay actually is an expression of God's great mercy. Right? That's what he says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should be reached with repentance. Before the return of Christ, there is this period of, of mercy and compassion. And from what we know about the God of the Bible, that's, that's his heart. He's not quick to anger. He's what? Slow to anger. Um, he does not, he tells us through the prophet Ezekiel, he does not delight in the destruction even of the wicked. He's not something he, he's happy about. Jesus himself, you know, overlooks Jerusalem in Matthew 23. A, a, a city that's about to kill him is going to reject him and reject God's Messiah. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like, like chicks under a, 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 a hen, but you were unwilling. There's just a sense of divine compassion and mercy. What that means for us is that every breath... Every second of every day, every new sunrise, every smile or laugh is an expression of pure mercy on God's part. Instead of being surprised that, oh, God, you're taking a long time, perhaps we should flip around and go, man, I cannot believe how merciful you are. To even wait? I mean, if, if I was God and heaven forbid, <laughs> I would have ended a long time ago. You like look at how stuff's going on right now. You look at the fact that our society is systematically writing God out of everything. You can worship him in church and keep him in your private life, but don't talk about him in public. Heaven forbid you talk about divine providence in, in public history. 
Heaven forbid we talk about intelligent design in a science class, even though that's just a genericized theism, does not have to do with necessarily God of the Bible, or that how God has ordered the universe and ordered marriage and ordered our, our genders is, is now passe and repressive, so we wipe that out. Man, if I were God, I'd be like, really, you want me out? Let me just take away gravity for five seconds. <laughs> or let me just, you know, huge solar flare and cook the earth for two seconds. So you could do any of that. The simple fact that we're breathing right now and people outside this who don't even believe in the Lord breathe is a simple but profound testament to the enduring mercy of God. But a day is coming when that mercy will end for those who have not found refuge in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ who took God's wrath ahead of time for us so that we don't have to take it later when he returns the second time. Sheer mercy, but that, that time's coming. So instead of being surprised that it's taken so long, we ought to go, man, God, you're so amazingly merciful. And then the third divine truth to consider, to get you to think, is just the descriptions of his arrival. The arrival of God in the person of Jesus Christ. This is, this is what he says. And you just want to like kind of soak it in. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That is, it's going to be sudden. It is going to be universal. It's going to be unexpected. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. So some translate it like their sound of crackling fire, like a roar of a fire. And the heavenly bodies will, will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That is exposed for judgment. Everything's coming out. Everything buried under a rock is going to come out and, and be judged. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and, and godliness, waiting or hoping for and, and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will, be, will, will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting, hoping for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You can't talk about the second advent of Jesus without talking about both sides of the sword. That is, in terms of both wrath and also blessing, or curse and blessing, wrath and salvation. Like, that's, it's a package deal. We like to talk about the hopeful parts, but the fact of the matter is most of the verses here talk about the very horrifying parts of this. There's, there's two sides to it. Um, when Christ comes back, that he's, he's going to execute God's wrath on the world. It's no more of this little like picture of Jesus with a, a little staff and holding a lamb. Um, he's going to come back with a sword in his mouth, and he's, gonna, he's going to render judgment. And both those facets of his return have to be kept in mind. Now, how much of this is figurative, you know, fire and dissolving and all that? How much is to be taken literally is a matter of some um, controversy. Romans 8 seems to suggest that there's continuity between the creation we have right now and the creation that will be reborn. You know, it's, it's subject to futility. It's waiting with eager expectation for redemption. That is, there's a sense in which creation right now, though it's fallen and probably half of what it used to be, is screaming to be recreated. And Peter seems to suggest that it burns all up. I think it's 
both. I think that the world that we know, the universe as we know it, is going to go through some kind of a uh, death and rebirth, a death and resurrection, as the body of Jesus and as our bodies will do. But it will be a physical, wonderful creation. So you have judgment and you have, you have salvation. New heavens, new earths rise side by side. But this is, this is the description of what will happen when the sky parts and what separates heaven from earth will be torn in two or rolled back and humanity will face God in the person of Jesus Christ. And again, this is the collective testimony and witness of all the prophets in the Old Testament and all the apostles in the New. It's not as if one guy said, guess what, Jesus is coming back. No, there are 15 centuries of prophetic word that says this event is an inevitable certainty. Whether in your experience you think it could happen or not, or whether you call it a myth or not, or you call it a fiction or not, the fact of the matter is the entirety of the Bible says this is an inevitable certainty on the calendar at some point. And at some point, all the naysayers, because everybody rises back to life, all the naysayers are going to look up and realize, holy crap. <laughs> if there's ever a time, I did this first service, and I apologize, and I'll apologize again. If there's ever a time to say holy crap on a podium or on the stage, it's talking about the response of people when the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, shows up face to face. People will say, That's, you know, at the same time, for us who've taken shelter in the mercy of Christ and his cross, to us, that's going to be wedding day, you know? It's like we get to see him, and we get to be with him always in a world that screams his glory. That's, that's our, our hope and that's, that ought to be not back burner, not in some recessed closet in the back of your heart. No, it needs to be in the, like the main room of your house. Not just looking back to his first advent where he wasn't just born to be born. He was born to live a righteous life and die a sacrificial death so that when he comes a second time, we can shout with joy. That ought to be front and center in our our church, in our hearts, in our, our experience. Keep the hope alive. Because that will have and should have like an ethical, um, like a real um, tangible, practical difference in your life. I mean, that's what he says, the moral effects. Like, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and go um, godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of God? It's like, it should kind of have like a sobering, Joy-producing effect, both. It should make a tangible difference in how you live tomorrow, in the next day, in the next day. What does it mean to live a holy life in light of the coming, this inevitable certainty, this apocalyptic coming of the Son of God? Man, it seems to me that it means that we're going to commit ourselves to sexual purity and marital fidelity and perseverance. It means that we're going to be more generous and more hospitable because we don't have to hold on to the stuff of the old creation because we have a new creation set before us. It means that we're going to have actually a passion to tell people about Christ because this day is coming and you don't want to be caught unprepared. It means 
that we're people who let our yes be yes and our no be no and speak the truth in love. It ought to have a, make a tangible difference on daily activities of life. It ought to make us want to work with all of our heart what God has given to us, knowing that we exist to honor him, and someday we'll be rewarded for how we have honored him in our work and our career. That's how it ought to make a difference in our lives. So let me just ask you, as we have four weeks we're going to dwell on this in various aspects. Next week, Isaiah 65, amazing text, talking about the new creation and peace. Um, let me ask you, just as you think about it this season, let's, let's pray for each other. Let's pray for our church. Pray for the stirring of hope. Pray for a focused mind. Pray that the return of Christ wouldn't be out there distant from us, but it would be something we cherish, like a, a man waiting for the altar to hear his wife say, I do. Pray for each other, for our church in this time, that God would just do this and reawaken or reconfirm or um, reignite our, our passion for the return of Christ. Amen? You do that. Lord, I ask that you would start that even yesterday and just remind us of how crucial and, 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 uh, and important it is and how much hope it gives us. And we look a around us today and see so much chaos and, um, and evil, just to know that someday you will come settle all scores and recreate everything just gives us hope and joy, uh, even amidst some of the difficult things. So we just, again, let hope rise, Lord. Um, let hope be um, something that is real in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.